Chapter 19 of The Mystery of the Woods by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 And this is what they saw. The man who was clothed in the panther's skin was standing on the very edge of the water with his hands stretched towards them, with a gesture of supreme supplication. His face had lost the stolid animal-like look which had disguised his humanity, or, to be more exact, was in the act of losing it. It was as if the human soul, which had been long dead, had heard the voice of the master of life, who was calling it to come forth, and had already appeared at the door of the sepulchre, not natural in appearance as yet, for the pallor still resisted the coming of the warm currents to the cheek, and instead of the garments of those who live with the living, it stood wrapped in the winding sheet of the dead. So the soul of this unfortunate creature, the soul of his humanity, seemed standing, as it were, only just within the enclosure of his countenance, standing as yet uncertain what to do, not as yet fully possessed of his senses, but struggling to reassert its long-lost mastery over itself, and over the face which it had once animated and glorified with its beautiful and majestic presence. Thus the man stood on the beach, with his feet washed by the water, his hands stretched imploringly toward them, and his face changing in its expression from the animal into the human. I seed it coming, Henry. Yes, I seed it coming, boy, when I was talking to him, but I didn't concede it would come so soon. But the Lord be quicker in the movements of his mercy than man be in his faith and he never wrought a deed of deliverance yet to them to be bound in their senses or their bodies, that it didn't come as a kind of surprise. Yes, the Lord certainly works in secret, and you can't tell just where he's hidden, and he uncovers his ambushments of mercy quicker than a Huron does the ambushment of his devilment. It's a great mistake, boy, to conceit that the Lord be slow in his acting, for though he waits till the judicious time has come, and you can't hurry him, Yet when his counseling be over, and the moment has come for the deed, the deed be did, and it be did so quick that it sets all your guessing to naught. What shall we do, John Norton? The man is coming to his reason, isn't he? What shall we do? Nothing yet, boy, nothing yet. The Lord be managing the case, and you've nothing to do but to lie in your oars. Keep your eyes open, boy, for though my head be whitening, and I've noted a good many queer things, yet I certainly never seed such a sight as this, and it makes a man feel a good deal as if he was standing by a grave or a cradle to see a man that's been dead in his manhood being born again, and that's just what's going on there on the beach, as nigh as I can judge. It was indeed a strange and solemn spectacle. Above the sky was bright with the brightness of day. On all sides nature showed at her loveliest aspect, and on the beach, with the trapper and his companion only for spectators, a man who had been insane for years, with an insanity whose delusion had separated him from his kind, was coming once more to the enjoyment of his reason. Human emotion, which for years had been within the breast an unfelt feeling, once more began to stir. Intelligence, which for years had been banished from the eyes, once more began to fill the orbs with its fine discriminating light. The lips began to move, as if within the tongue, so long unaccustomed to speak was striving to get back its facility of motion. 
And as these efforts of reviving nature were being made under the impulse of what could be not less than divine power, the blood began to come and go in flushes over the countenance, and the body in its poses began to assume the bearing appropriate to the human form. But the effort was intense. The demon was being cast out, but the devilishness of his energy was manifest in the violence and rending which his unwilling exit caused. The countenance was contorted. The muscles of the face worked and twitched. Froth stood on the lips. The body began to be convulsed, and with a mighty spasm the form was dashed upon the beach where it lay groveling. "'John Norton!' exclaimed Henry as the terrible manifestation proceeded. "'This is a dreadful spectacle!' "'Call it a blessed sight, boy,' responded the trapper as he backed the boat with his paddle toward the beach. "'Call it a blessed sight. The devil may be certainly going out, but he be going out as he went out in the days when the scripture was writ. It may be that the touch of a human hand and the moistening of a little water will help the Lord in his endeavors. Leastwise, it will do no hurt.' And if I can do no more than keep the sand from his eyes and the grit from his mouth, it'll be something to have did to a feller being in his suffering. While he had been thus speaking, he had been backing his boat toward the beach, and as it touched the sand, he stepped out and proceeded toward the prostrate form that lay on the shore. He went to his side and laid a strong grasp on his shoulders and steadied him, and then he took him by the wrists and held his hands apart that he might not rend himself and bent over him as the strong bend over the weak, even the strong in the fullness of health, when they bend over the sick, imparting by the motion and the contact the vitality that is needed. "'Fetch me some water, boy,' said the trapper, calling to Herbert, who still kept his place in the boat. "'Slip your cup from your belt and bring me some water and dash it in his face. It may be the shock of nature will bring him out of his spasm, for the struggle be sore.' And was it not the Lord's doing, I would certainly say that the spirit would be torn from his body. But the Lord never kills when he undertakes to save, and the man will live. The motions of Herbert had been as quick as agility could make them, and when the trapper had closed his saying, the young man was standing, cup in hand, over the convulsed form. "'Dash the water in his face, Henry!' exclaimed the trapper. "'Dash it in! Never mind the wetting! The wetting won't hurt, and the drying can come arterward!' The young man complied, and with a sudden motion of his hand dashed the water full in the face of the sufferer. The scream which issued from the mouth of the tortured creature was of so fierce and terrible a sort that the ears which heard might never forget it. But with that terrible cry the demon passed out of the man. The legs straightened in their weakness, the muscles of the arm relaxed their tension, and as the trapper unclasped his hands from the wrists, sank motionless by his side. The head drooped till it rested, as the head of a man that is dead, on the trapper's lap. The pulse still beat, the heart still kept its motion, but the prostration to follow the struggle and the agony was profound. "'Is he dead, John Norton?' asked Herbert. "'No, boy,' answered the trapper. "'He's beginning to live. He be weak as a babe, because his strength has been the strength of evil, and evil be gone out of him, and his weakness be the weakness of one just born.' Bring me a towel from the boat, and let me wipe his face free of the water and the sand, for when he opens his eyes, I would have him look clean and natural-like. For several minutes the trapper busied himself with his kindly offices. 
He bathed the face and dried it with motions as careful and tender as a skillful nurse uses with a patient that is lying in the extremity of mortal weakness. He lifted the head of the man onto his own breast, parted his hair in human fashion, and with his great fingers stroked it backward, endeavoring to give it its proper appearance. He bathed the hands and made them cleanly, and placed one on the other in decent fashion. And then he waited, waited patiently and without a doubt for strength to come back to the life that had been born, waited, saying not a word, and over the three the sun shone brightly. The blue sky stretched its blue dome, the wind played with mellow sounds through the pine tops, and silence, the silence of a lonely lake shore, pervaded as it seemed to the two, with the sweet mercy of heaven, rested on them as if expectant. At last the eyes of the man slowly unclosed. To him at first were the uncovered orbs, but to them gradually, as if returning from a great distance, came back that marvelous light which makes man, man. He opened his eyes, opened them and lay still, looking out upon the world, as if then he beheld it for the first time. He saw the sky, he saw the trees, he saw the bright light of the bright day. He saw the water stretching out in front of him so clear and so blue, saw them as one who had not seen them before. But after a while a look of recognition came to his eyes, and the light within, sharpened through the dimness, and memory that had so long slept, woke and began to connect the sights that he saw with the sights that he had seen long years before. And never to his dying day will Herbert forget the look of those eyes when the recognition was complete, and the world that he had forgotten, the man knew once more. And then, and this was the first motion that the man made, the will made its connection with the eyes, and the man turned them slowly and fixed them steadily upon Herbert's face. Long did their gaze stay steadfast. Long did he peruse with puzzled scrutiny the young man's countenance, and then he moved his head, slid it down from the broad breast on which it rested to the forearm and knee of the trapper, and, having adjusted it there, gazed upward into the great, grave, strong face bowed above him. Long he studied it feature by feature, studied it at first as a little child studies the mother's face, scarcely comprehending it. But as he gazed, the soul grew strong within. The spirit moved itself aright. A sweet, fine light crept over the features like the strange gleam in iridescent glass, and he said, and the words came feebly but clearly uttered, Speaking to the face above him, he said, Art thou God? The trapper answered, Only thy brother, friend. Herbert turned away. After a few moments, the man, whose gaze had not moved itself from the trapper's face, said, Who are you, then? I've had a good many names, answered the trapper, for the redskins have a gift of giving names, and I've consorted a good deal with knaves and honest ones alike and one tribe has given me one name, and another tribe has given me another name. And I've seen times that I was a little uncertain just what my name was. But the name that was given me first, and the name which I know myself by, and the name the Lord knows me by, leastwise if he be at all careful with the manner of names, which them that be of my color know me by, yes, is John Norton. The man made no motion and gave no sign for a full minute. 
but gazed steadily at the face above him. He was weak, that was evident, weak with the weakness that was departing, but departing slowly. His powers were at the ebb. The incoming tide lift of the great ocean was setting in, and the level waters began to feel the prophecy of the coming flood, but they stood motionless as yet. Then he said, Thou art good. Off and on, responded the trapper. Off and on, friend. Nothing exactly certain, unless it be the matter of sightin' when meat is scarce, or a vagabond gets within range. But beyond that, nothing is certain. The man didn't understand him. At least the faintest look of bewilderment came to his eyes. Perhaps he was not strong enough yet to get the consequence of connected thought or the sense of quaintness of humorous speech. In a moment he asked, Where am I? This be Sandy Point, answered the trapper. The redskins called it. The point where the winds always play. And the redskins never get a name to a man or a spot yet that didn't fit the nature of the man or the spot. Yes, this be Sandy Point, and a cheerful spot it be, too. How did I come here? Your trail has been a long un, and a crooked one, too, answered the trapper. As I can see, and I certainly don't know the windings of it, so when you ask me how you come here, I'm obliged to tell you I don't know. Be strong enough to set up. I am, responded the man, and suiting his motion to his speech, he slowly lifted himself from his reclining posture, and bracing himself with either palm on the ground, he sat erect. What is this I have on? he exclaimed, and he looked with startled eyes at the skin that was fitted to his person. You have the devil's hide for certain, said the trapper. Yes, you have the devil's hide on you. I've sighted on the fur a hundred times, and you've stolen the skin of a panther for your covering. Where are my clothes? was the sharp interrogation. Friend, said the trapper, you be a little easy in your questioning, for I know as much as a man should of my gifts. Yet, when you ask me about your clothes, you have asked me more than I can tell you. Take off this dreadful thing, he cried. Take off this dreadful thing. This is not a garment of a human being. It's a covering of a beast. True as judgment, answered the trapper. You've hit it square on the head, and that's saying a good deal for a man that's used the piece as little as you have. Yes, your covering be that of a beast, and a miserable beast at that. But when you ask me to strip it off, you speak in your haste. For though it be an unhuman covering, yet breeches and waistcoats ain't plenty in the woods. And unless you mean to take to the water, you'd certainly best keep the miserable covering around you till something can be did. What can be done? exclaimed the man. What can be done that I may be delivered from this dreadful apparel? Boy, said the trapper, speaking to Herbert, here be need of a counsel, for the man has put it to us, and ye hear it is question, and I ask you what can be did. For the man is certainly in distress, and there isn't a store within ninety mile. I have some breeches in my cabin, but the cabin be far off, and the man be here in his nakedness. Have you anything to say, boy? The blanket is in the boat, answered Herbert, and he can have my jacket. Can we not make him a pair of pantaloons out of the blanket? I won't answer for the cut, boy, answered the trapper. No, I won't answer for the cut, but the cloth be firm and the color be a good'un. Bring the blanket, boy, and the deer thongs in the starn of the boat. The man has come to his reason, and he shall have the clothing of a man, 
though I won't answer for the cut. In an hour the man was decently clothed. The trapper, assisted by Herbert, had done his best, and a serviceable garment at least was the result. And when the man had cast aside the covering which he had assumed in his insanity, and clothed himself in the garments that had been made for and given to him, he seemed to have returned fully to himself. He spoke with intelligence. He acted with propriety. And it was evident that he had come forth from his delusion, not only to the fullness of restored human understanding, but with utter forgetfulness of the wretched condition in which he had so long been enthralled. The trapper and Herbert had prepared a meal, and with them the man had partaken of it, eating in silence indeed, but with decorum, and even with the manner of a gentleman. Nor was his bearing lacking nobility, or his countenance devoid of manly beauty, and the two friends felt that, whether they should find the one for whom they were searching or not, directed of God they had found another of his creatures, that had indeed been lost, but now was found. At the conclusion of the meal, the trapper, speaking to the man, said, Friend, you know my name and the name of Henry here, and it may be that you would like to know our errand. There has been a boatload of vagabonds in the woods, and they come in on the devil's own errand, for they had stole a girl from her home in the north country, and they brought her to the woods to leave her in some lonely spot that she might die. Henry and me are hunting their trail, and the signs certainly point to this lake and somewhere beyond. The knaves themselves have got off, and there's a little more powder in my horn than there would naturally have been had we met. Yes, the knaves have got off, but the girl be left somewhere in the woods, and by this time she must be nigh starving unless she died of fright or some evil mishap has come to her. I concede that she be off to the southeast, and I thought that perhaps she had run again her in your wanderings. Friend, have you seen the girl? I have not, said the man, as the negative came from the man's lips so promptly and decidedly, giving such a direct contradiction to what he had intimated in response to the pantomime. Henry involuntarily started and threw a glance of sharp interrogation at the speaker. But the face of the trapper changed not a single line of its expression. His eyes kept the calmness of their look, and his features their tranquility. After a moment's pause, he said, your answer be straight, friend, and if your memory be good, the boy and me would start from this point with heavier hearts than we hope to. May I ask you where you have been for the last four or five days? An expression of pain came to the face of the man, and after a moment's hesitating pause, he said, speaking to both, Gentlemen, I do not know where I have been for the last four or five days. I do not know where I have been for the last four or five years. I do not know the date of the year, or the name of the month, or what week or what day I am living in. The past seems to me like a dream in which everything that might be seen was in blank blackness. I remember a house that was mine. I remember a wife that died. I remember a child, but beyond that all is blank. Where have I been? What have I been? How long have I been in this trance? I do not know. I cannot tell where I was yesterday, where I was when you found me. I cannot tell you a thing. Would to God I could, for I see by your face that you are doing a deed of mercy, and that you hope to get help from me. Henry, said the trapper, the ways of the Lord be past finding out. Had he come to his reason sooner, we wouldn't have knowed what we know. Had he come but a little later, 
we would not have been here to have helped him in his feebleness. The seasons of doing and not doing, of happening and not happening, be not in man's hands. The Lord brought us to this point, and the Lord kept us from going, and I certainly believe that he ordered the coming and the going judiciously. One of his creatures has found himself, and we with his help shall find the other. And now, friend, it's time that Henry and me be going, for the girl be alone, and it may be the girl be dying. I don't concede that you'll be much help in the search, and therefore maybe you'd better stay where you be. There be venison and bread, and there be matches, and there be a knife and a hatchet. You'll find a shanty in the swale back of the knoll that I built six year ago. It may need patching, but the work will be healthy for you and keep your thoughts going in right directions. The vittles will last you and nigh on to a week if you ain't wasteful, and I conceit that Henry will leave his pistol with you, and you'll find partridges thick in the woods back of the shanty. You needn't worry, for within a week one of us will come back to you, and if we be lucky, there'll be three instead of one. And now, friend, continued the trapper as he rose and took him by the hand, the Lord has been merciful to you in your trouble, and he will stay with you when we go. You'll find the sound of the waters on the beach and the sound of the winds in the trees soothing to your mind. And nature will keep you cheerful, for if a man's heart be right, she gives a man company that never disturbs him. And if he has wit and be teachable to learn her wisdom, she will make him wiser than them that know nothing but the learning of books. Come, Henry, we must be going. The sun is getting to the west, and the girl must not stay another night alone. End of chapter 19